Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Photography. I'm the host, Lorena Turner. I'm a lecturer in the Communication Department at the California State Polytechnic University in Pomona, California, and I'm also a photographer. Robert Herman's book, The New Yorker, is a collection of 25 years of a street. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Photography. I'm the host, Lorena Turner. I'm a lecturer in the communication department at the California State Polytechnic University in Pomona, California, and I'm also a photographer. Robert Herman's book, The New Yorker, is a collection of 25 years of his street photography. All shot on Kodachrome slide film, his images recall some of the great cinematographers working in American film in the late 1970s. Robert's images pay close attention to the very foundations of formal color photography color, light, and their interplay. He finds his subjects on the sidewalks of the city, and he seeks an empathetic connection with them through his lens. In our conversation, Robert talks about what inspired him to pick up a camera in his early years of shooting, as well as how he survived as a young person living in New York with the undiagnosed condition of bipolar disorder. With Robert Frank and Harry Callahan as his aesthetic guides, Robert's street photography brings back a New York that is fading in our collective memory. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Photography. I'm Lorena Turner, and I'm talking today with Robert Herman about his new book, The New Yorkers. Welcome to the show, Hi. Robert. Thank you so much. Sure. So, sorry, <laughs> I talked over you at the start. So your book, The New Yorkers, has been printed twice, once in yeah. uh, the spring of 2013 and a second time in the spring of 2015. Tell me a little bit about what the book is about. Well, the book is basically my Kodachrome photos that I made in the 1980s. There's some from the 90s and a little bit from the 2000s. Um, It's street photography in New York. I started making the book without any intention of making a book back in 1978, 79, just teaching myself how to make photographs. And eventually I arrived at shooting on Kodachrome because I liked the colors so much. Um, And I was living downtown in Little Italy. So my neighborhood, which was basically Little Italy and Soho, were my first places to shoot. And, you know, I found there would be a really enormous amount of interesting things going on because Soho was an artist community then. And Little Italy used to be an ethnic community of Italians. So there was a lot of local color, I guess you could call it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and when did you get started working as a photographer? Tell us a little bit about your career. Well, I was an NYU film student. Uh, I got to New York in 1976. And while I was there, I, I um, made three films. One, just a basic intro film, you know, in black and white with a hundred feet of film. And then um, I worked on my thesis project for about three years. It's called uh, Pizza with Bogey. And it's kind of was an experimental film, um, color, black and white, dream sequences, flashbacks. It's about 15 minutes long and it was shot at 16 millimeter. And finally I made a film called Dance Film, which was a documentary of of the dance company, Patsy Parker, dance company, where I shot 100 feet of film, then I shot the same roll backwards, and then I shot the same roll again by putting it back in the camera forwards again. And then I had it printed three times so that you had a 10-minute film with a triple exposure in it. Wow. Yeah. And then her husband, William, 
Parker, who's a very well-known avant-garde bass player, um, um, did the music soundtrack for it. And we set it up on the film in a, in a, um, in a film studio at NYU. And I recorded him playing four different tracks on a reel-to-reel tape recorder. And that was the music for the film. So that's all it is. It's a triple exposed film with a um, with a really interesting kind of dissonant avant-garde uh, soundtrack. Wow, that's really interesting. So, th- so that was your thesis uh, project, or that was the after after your thesis project? Well, I was working on both of them at the same time. The thesis project, Pizza with Bogey which the original title was a story for Lisa, but I changed it because it just pizza with bogey seemed uh, more interesting. It was basically my story of being alone in New York and coming to NYU um, and trying to find love in New York. But it's not your typical living in the city picture. It's more of a, a poem. And I'm re- even today, I still like it. I like both of those films a lot. I think they still work. But the thing is, when I was at NYU, I needed something that I could do every day to make creative something. And I took an intro to photography course, and I started shooting black and white and developing it, making contact sheets, and I found out that I really liked it, and I was really good at it. And so I just kept making photographs, and at the same time, um, you know, making films is really expensive. You need a lot of people. And I just ended up sort of moving closer and closer to being a full-time photographer. And when I graduated from NYU, I had already shot production stills on 10 or 11 student films. So I had a portfolio, and I realized that I could make a living doing this. And I started looking for work on professional, low-budget, independent films in New York. And I actually got a job working for this company who was making a film called Vigilante, um, which is Robert Forster was in it, Fred Williamson, Ruben Blades, um, Willie Colon, a whole bunch of people. And it was really kind of, um, you know, a B-movie. That's what we used to call those movies back in the day, a B-movie. A lot of violence, a lot of, um, you know, a revenge kind of plot. And I was the production still photographer, and they paid me to show up every day for, like, nine months. And if anybody knows anything about production stills, basically what you're doing is waiting around for this crew to set up the shot. And sometimes that could take half a day, sometimes it could take a whole day, or you don't shoot at all because you're waiting for the weather to match the, sh- uh, the scene. And I realized that I could shoot my own film in the neighborhoods where we were on location and make my own pictures on my own film, which I used Kodachrome for the movie. I used Ektachrome. And that's really where I really got serious about making street photography. That's, that's great that you had that kind of space in between working that you could creative about using that time to create that space for yourself. Well, I, what I basically did was end up taking all the money that I was making on the film and spending it on my own film. <laughs> on your own work? <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, we were camped out in a Greenpoint tea food parking lot for a couple of months shooting a chase scene. And the weather was not cooperating with the director. So I had a lot of free time on my hands. And right behind the parking lot was, um, you know, was basically a, a row house with a beautiful clothesline in the background, I mean, uh, out the window there, and I sh- the light was gorgeous, and I shot a whole roll of this woman hanging the clothes, and it ended up being one of my favorite early photos that ended up in the New Yorkers, and it was actually the first print that I ever sold. I am, I'm going to look at your book while we're talking. I have it, I have it open, and I was, when I was reviewing your book in preparation for our interview... Hopefully I can find it in this space that I, where I'm talking. I noticed a, a, a photo that was a clothesline photo, and I, there's a lot of, there it is, that's, it's against a, uh, a yellow house. Yeah, that's yeah. it. That is an incredible photo. It's just gorgeous. The light's amazing. The forms are incredible. It just has, it, it, it's incredibly 
like vibrant in in a way. I mean, visually vibrant, but also kind of um, you know kind of spiritually vibrant, like that that thing that you strive for in street photography that kind of expresses more than what's actually there. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's thank you for that, by the way. Yeah. Uh, you know, to, to me, the idea of street photography for me is finding something that is seemingly mundane and trying to make it in a photograph transcendent a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like that, that happens in this photo. So that is on, um, let's see, uh, it's on page 33. That's if, if anyone wants to find that one later. Yeah. Have you had a, um, like a, a career in shooting... Um, for doing stills for movies? is that Was that something that you continued to do after that initial movie that you talked about? Well, I did three or four movies after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, back in the 80s, there was no tax break for low-budget films at that time. And there wasn't a lot of work. Mm. So I ended up driving a taxi for a while um, and always doing my photography. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, I ended up taking a job at United Artists Theaters. My father had owned a movie theater in um, Brooklyn when I was a kid. And I called up my father's partner one day, feeling like I got to do something to make more money. And I ended up being a movie booker for uh, United Artists out on Long Island. And Suffolk County was my territory. So I had 40 screens to book. And basically I was picking the movies you know, that all the major companies were distributing at any one time. And back in that time, it was like uh, Top Gun, um, uh, Lethal Weapon, a whole bunch of movies like that. And basically, I was like, you know, wearing a suit to work every day, reverse commuting from Astoria to Long Island, because that's where I moved after I lived in Little Italy and the building got sold. And for three years, that's what was my job, you know. Mm-hmm. Wow, I, I come from a movie theater uh, working experience too. Though my parents didn't own movie theaters, I was I was a projectionist for a long time. Wow, that's amazing. Were you in the union? No, I wasn't because this that was in the '90s, and I worked for independent, uh, you know, kind of art house cinemas, and they were outside of that structure. Wow, in so. New York. Not in New York, no, in, in, um, in Albuquerque and in outside of Los Angeles, and in Oregon, too. You know, working in a movie theater is really an education. I thought so, too. But how, did you, how do you see it? Well, since I was, like, 12 years old, I, I would go to my father's theater. It was on King's Highway in Brooklyn. And at that time, they were showing, you know, um, let me think. Like Hollywood movies. Mm-hmm. And I saw Easy Rider. I saw Blow Up by Antonioni, uh, Butch Cassidy, a whole bunch of different movies, which, you know, during that time was the early 70s. is basically the golden age of uh, Hollywood, where they had the auteur theory and Robert Altman and uh, Scorsese was just starting out. And when you see a movie over and over and over again, because I was able to do that being my dad's kid. Um, the story sort of disappears there for a while, and you can really, really appreciate the image. And I fell in love with cinematography, just looking at the pictures, you know. Um, Butch Cassidy had beautiful daylight photography. Most of the movie was shot outside. And I think just unconsciously I just absorbed uh, cinematographer's choice of lighting, framing, and I think it translated into my work much later. You absorbed it and and processed it and brought it back through your Kodachrome images, perhaps. Yeah, and I try to have my pictures, uh, the ones that I actually choose to show people, I hope have a little bit of a story. Mm-hmm. Even if it's all inferred, you know, there's something about the juxtaposition of things in a photograph that is more than the sum of its parts. And there's some kind of language in the photograph that it does better than anything else, which is juxtapose things in this, you know, in life. Um, and then they start to talk to each other and make some kind of story going on, even if it's a short story. Sure. 
Well, um, I have a question specifically about your book. So the, the book is a, a the New York is is a culmination of the work you did from the late 1970s, and it, it goes up into like up until or kind of through the 2000s or the first decade of the 2000s. Or did it? When did what's the ending? The last picture in the book is mm-hmm. actually the latest picture in the book is from 2005, and it's a picture um, that's after the main body of the book. And that's when Kodachrome stopped being made by Kodak. So it was impossible to keep shooting it. It was a really sad day for me because I absolutely loved the film. And, you know, so I, if I was going to make a book of the New Yorkers from film, I was going to make it all, uh, all Kodachrome. And that was it. So in that time period, which is a good, oh my... 25, 30 years? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what did, was what you were looking for in a photograph or what you were observing on the street to photograph, did that change over time? I think my language of and my experience and my study of the history of photography started to get more sophisticated. Um, but, you know, in some ways my style is still the same as it's always been. In the last few years, I've been using the iPhone and the Hipstamatic app to make street photography. And, you know, if you look at my second book, the phone book, there's definitely echoes of the first one. Mm-hmm. But the language and the subject matter is a little more subtle. But I'm really building on, um, you know, what I learned, taught myself in the first five, six years. How do you think your your work in street photography differs from other people who are practicing that type of photography? Mm, that's, a, that's a really tough question. Um, I think my my style is very formal. Um, it's got this kind of formality that cinematographers have in movies. When I was starting out my way of educating myself about photography was to buy uh, photography books. One of the books I bought at the beginning was Robert Frank's The Americans, which is a black and white book, and Harry Callahan's book, uh, Color 1978. And so by absorbing those two books, like a a textbook, basically, and looking at every picture and figuring out if I liked it, it, how it worked, uh, what was the light in the picture, the color, the arrangement, the composition... I realized that, you know, this is a gradual thing. It wasn't like an epiphany that um, maybe I could take what Callahan did in color and Frank did in black and white and integrate it in my own being somehow and find my way to do street photography on color slides that was influenced a great deal by those two books. I also, I can definitely see echoes of both of those people in your images. And I, I also noticed, too, that you, you ha- when, you, when there are people in your photos, you, you kind of, there, there, many times, not all of the time, but many times, there's just a, there's a single person in an environment. You know, it's very, it's very um, you know, it's as if you're trying to say something about that person at that moment in that um, mm-hmm. environment. And yeah. it, it feel it feels very much as if, you know, as if the story, the story, the implied story there, um, is a is a really enormous part of the way that you're seeing and interacting with your subject matter, and that what you what you want us as viewers and readers to to take away from your your images too. Well, I think that the pictures I made in those days were really about identification and empathy. I felt kind of um, alone in New York. I was a bit alienated. Um, And I was trying to find the pictures that are strong, that have this kind of connection where I'm sort of using the person in the frame as a stand-in for me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why the pictures um, have an emotional resonance. Mm -hmm. And the, the older I get, the more I realize that good photographs are really all about empathy and identification. And that all street photography is, it seems like it's 
about the world, but photography is really about the photographer. And in this case, me. Which brings me to my next question. There's, I, I read um, the foreword by, by Sean Cochran, and he quotes you in the foreword, and your quote is, at first New York seemed extremely chaotic. So this means, at first meaning when you first arrived to the yeah. city. It seemed extremely chaotic and confusing, and the images in The New Yorkers are representative of my most successful attempts to work through this confusion. Making pictures was my method of getting to know myself and to feel connected and to understand my surroundings. It is a dialogue about my love-hate relationship with the city. I felt I was an outsider. So what was confusing to you about New York when, if you can remember that, when you first arrived there? Um, When I first got here, I was a film student after being a poli-sci slash English major at Boston University and living in the dorm. and honestly, I saw The Godfather Part Two in Boston, and that was the moment where I decided to go to film school. Oh, really? Because <laughs> the movie was just so amazing to me. Mm. Um, and basically, I was at BU for two years and as a sophomore. My father died at the end of my freshman year. And by the end of my second year at BU, I was basically having a nervous breakdown. And at the end of the semester, I... I remember packing up my stuff and I had a, a, an old used car that my uncle gave me and I was saying goodbye to one of my friends and I realized that I was never coming back. And it was heartbreaking for me, but I was really having a really hard time and I ended up in the hospital a couple of times. And after spending six months on my mother's couch, basically, I realized that if I didn't get up and do something, my life is just going to go downhill. So I applied to NYU. I got in. And so I moved into the city basically with an undiagnosed bipolar disorder, make sense of my life and make movies. And basically I was way over my head in terms of um, my emotional stability. Somehow I kept working through it. And one of the ways that I worked through it was by doing photography. That's kind of what I meant when Sean was quoting me. So, I, did you were you did you um, did you do kind of what most people do when they first move to New York City? Did you have an apartment that you were either had on your own or you had with roommates that you no. may or may not have known and, and try to make your way? Like, well, I was lucky in the sense that my mother had some money from um, taking over the theater from my father, and I got an apartment on Waverly Place. And it was two fifty a month, believe it or not. That's incredible. <laughs> um, so, but, you know, I actually hated the apartment. It had no light. It was one oh. of those interior apartments where it was a studio and it looked out on an air shaft. And for somebody who was basically depressed, having a, an apartment with no windows was horrible. <laughs> yeah, that, that's no good. That's no good at all. No. So a couple of years after that, I ended up on uh, 13th and 3rd Avenue in a tiny little one-bedroom. And that's basically where I lived when I made the films at NYU and started shooting photography. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I said that was the beginning. Right, that was the beginning. So do you, you've lived in New York in the city since the 70s. Do you still feel like an outsider or has that subsided a bit? Um, I think for the first, from 78 to about 94, I still felt like an outsider. I was basically just trying to, um, heal. I mean, the thing is when you're undiagnosed, you do a lot of damage to yourself. And once you're diagnosed, it's kind of big relief. Oh, now I know what's going on and they have the medication to help it. And then I moved to Brooklyn and my life started to get better. <laughs> and I started to feel less like an outsider all the time. And that took another 10 or 15 years. And when I was in 2008, I went back to school to get a master's at the School of Visual Arts um, digital photography program that Katrina Eisman runs. And that really was a real game changer for me in terms of not just my photography, but there was only 16 students in the class, and you had to show up every day and interact with all of them. 
show them your work, you know, have opinions about their work. And it was like boot camp for a year. Because it was only an 11-month program to get your master's. And you even went to school in the summer. And I think by the time I came out of NYU, I had learned how to use digital equipment. And that was one of the main reasons I went back to school was because I'd been an analog film person. And the world was changing. And I figured if I didn't go back to school and learn some of this stuff, um, I really, my career would never really go anywhere. So being at the school and having such wonderful classmates and great teachers and an interesting curriculum was really my way of getting back in the world. Yeah, that that experience can be huge. You know, it it validates, I'm sure, for you, that it validated your choices, it validated, you know, a, a part of your internal life, and it really solidified where you thought you wanted to go. Yeah, and, you know... It was one of those things where, you know, I was the second oldest person in the class. And a lot of the people in the class had a much deeper knowledge of Photoshop and digital cameras. But there was something about my old photos Mm -hmm. that really was really, really strong. And it gave me some confidence that I could make new work that could be equal or better. You know, and also, and you know, SVA was a great place to meet people in the photography world and make connections. And you know, sometimes during that year, I started to really think about making a book of these Kodachrome slides from New York City. So, when you look at the city that's represented in your images, yeah, which is New York, I mean, has changed a lot since yeah. <laughs> since yeah. the time you were you started shooting. What is it that what is the city that you see now? So from 2016, looking back to the various times you shot, what is that city that you're seeing? Well, the city I see now is basically a, um, a city that's losing all the th- things that I loved about it. The mom and pop stores, the little boutiques are all taking, getting taken over by um, Starbucks, McDonald's or Dwayne Reed or. And it's starting to look like any other city in the world now. Um, I make the joke, well, why would anybody want to come to New York so they could look at a uh, an 80-story uh, condo that they can't go into? Right. That's a, that's a good. That's a good point. Um, you know, New York City has the reputation of being one of the most vibrant, um, interesting places on earth. And, you know, to just contrast that with Soho in the early 80s when the artists were there and there was graffiti all over the place. And I remember taking a walk in Soho to, to shoot some pictures. And every day I would run into people I know, people who are in the arts. And I think the real uh, change in New York is real estate. And, uh, somebody who's 20 years old comes to New York right now. And it's really, really difficult just to live let alone have time and um, resources to make something and be creative. And I think the vibrance of the city comes from those people in the middle class. And if you lose that, the artists in the middle class, um, something really, really vital and important uh, starts to seep away. And it's kind of heartbreaking to see it because, you know, obviously I love this place um, from shooting it and being here and to see it disappear day by day, you know, I'm sure you're familiar that these places that we've been going to like Pearl Paint or R. Rizzoli on 57th street, they're all gone and it's getting worse. You know, even with a democratic mayor who says he's on the side of the small little guys, he's up against an incredible um, amount of real estate economic power that, Trumps everything, no pun intended. <laughs> so kind of focusing on my question then, maybe my question is better asked, do you think that your the images in your book represent a, definitely they represent, you know, aspects of New York that are kind of fading, unfortunately, but do you think that there's a class element to your images too? Does it, do you feel that there's, that there's a focus, say, on what would be considered middle-class life? in your images? Well, basically the focus in the first book, in The New Yorkers, um, 
was me basically shooting the people who lived in the neighborhoods where I lived. And I identified with them. You know, like there's a lot of pictures of children in the book. And I, the reason the pictures of the kids are so strong is because on some level, I felt like a really vulnerable person at that time. And I saw that vulnerability in children. And I think there was some kind of unconscious connection. And these are just the kids who were playing in the streets, you know, streets of Little Italy. Um, parents weren't as protective, overprotective as they are now. And, you know, there's a picture in the book of uh, five or six kids playing with the fire hydrant, you know, with the water coming out in the, on a really hot day. You know, I just saw myself in all these kids. And, you know, honestly, Little Italy, Soho, the village in those days was middle class. And they were the raw material that was around me. Do you do you have a favorite image in your in the book? It's a good question. Well, I feel like they're all my children. You know, I sure. don't. <laughs> it's hard to choose. The other, I mean, basically the ones that are my favorites are the. Well, I'll give you an example. There's a double page. There's only two double pages images in the book where the uh, the image goes across the gutter of the middle. One of them is called Train Conductor. Um, Long Island City, 1985. I was driving a cab in those days, and I would get up really, really early in the morning to take the R train from Astoria to the Long Island City garage. And there's something really special about the light uh, once you get out from the tunnels. I'm sure you've taken the subway, and when it goes outside, it's like a different place. Sure, sure. It's really magical. And, you know, I... Driving a cab didn't make me happy, but it was survival. And I figured I had an opportunity um, getting up that early to make a picture, make pictures on the subway, on the R train. And this picture is really special for me because I didn't even know I made it. You know, when you shoot a lot, you know, you have the film developed that comes back a week later in a little yellow box from Kodak. And sometimes you just haven't had the time or whatever, and you file it away somewhere. And, you know, 20 years later, I'm really seriously considering making a book of these Kodachrome slides. And I had to go through everything I ever shot, which was about 25,000 of them, and edit it down to 100. And when I found this image, you know, in a slide sheet, in a notebook, you know, like a three-ring notebook, It was kind of like a shock. Like, wow, I made this picture. I didn't even know I had it. So in some ways, it's my favorite picture just because of that. Well, that's the the very the very best kind of shock, isn't it? <laughs> to make that kind of discovery that, that at the time that you took it and the time that you kind of filed it away, you weren't conscious of. Well, one of the things I realized is that, and this is really interesting for photographers in general, is that you make pictures you know, in a, in a specific time and place. And sometimes as you change as a person, you can go back and look at the pictures you made 10 years ago and see them differently. The pictures don't change, but you do. And, you know, part of the reason why the New Yorkers is so strong is that I had so much more life experience and photography experience, and I was able to edit my own work. And I could edit it with fresh eyes because... Not only was I a healthier person in general, is that I had some distance. And the distance is really important. You know, I had Stella Kramer, who's a photo editor and a photo consultant. She helped me with the editing also. And, you know, between the two of us, we were able to really um, make really good decisions. And most photographers have a lot of trouble letting go of the images that they shoot for whatever personal reasons or what happened that day and seeing them really for what, in a, in a putting this in quotes, objective way. And that takes a long time. for It took a long time for me. So, well, I was going to ask you more um, like specific questions about the editing process. So it's good that we're kind of there naturally in our conversation. When, once you decided that you were going to make the book, it's, you said you had about 25,000 images, which mm-hmm. is 
just an enormous amount to try to bring that down to the, you know, to 100, as you said. Yep. So what was, where, how did you do that? How did, did you, did you, were there certain things that you were looking for in the images that you kind of could, and did you go through stages where 25,000 became, 5,000 became yeah. you know, 500? I think one of the great things um, is that all these years I had been scanning images on a Nikon desktop scanner. So I had a big pile of images already available to me on my computer. And when I went to SVA, I started to learn how to use Adobe Lightroom. And that was a way to organize photos very quickly, put them into um, collections, and be able to see them, move them around, and start to really understand what was really working and what wasn't. And, you know, on an ongoing basis, I had all these loose-leaf notebooks with the slides, and I would put them on a slide table and pick the ones that I wanted to scan. And over a period of two or three years, I, you know, I was able to refine this process. And then when I really had the final edit for the book, you know, I got them scanned again by a professional uh, independent scanner guy who did drum scans for the whole book and made them really beautiful, you know. So I don't know if that answers your question or not. It does. I mean, it, it, it's, you, gave it, you gave me a sense of the, the length of time that it took you, which is, a, I mean, two to three years, you know, just in the editing process alone is a, is a pretty monumental task and commitment um, well, project. yeah, I was on a mission. I knew that I had to make a book if I was going to change my photography career. Yeah. And so, and how, how has the book changed your photography career? Well, there's something magical about a book. One of the ways photographers make connections in the world is by going to portfolio reviews. And my way of working with the New Yorkers was to make book dummies, you know, print-on-demand book dummies. And... I would go to these portfolio reviews um, and you'd meet with five different photo professionals like gallery owners or museum curators. And I had this dummy book that doesn't really have anything close to the quality of the printing that the final New Yorker's book has, which was printed offset on a real press. Um, and you hand them this book and something happens. It's a coherent, organized, focused body of work in book form. And you could show them the same images in a box as prints, but there's something really powerful about a book. And that's how Sean Cochran got interested in this uh, body of work. He's the curator of the Museum of the City of New York's photography department. And he was really encouraging. You know, four years later, he wrote the introduction. So, he's the perfect person to write the introduction. I Absolutely. think for your book, yeah. was he? Did you meet him at a portfolio review? Yeah, I did. Huh? Interesting. It, yeah, I think it was at uh, Powerhouse has a portfolio review. Oh, review. right, right, of course. Yeah, of course. So, you you've done two runs of the book, and you told me earlier that you're you're there's a, a possibility, a high possibility that you'll do a third run. Yeah, maybe. I'm um, whether it's worth it or not. Uh, what what is what is what are the elements that you consider as a part of evaluating whether a third run is worth it? Well, basically, it's going to cost around ten thousand to do another thousand books. So each book costs about ten bucks to me, and the book sells for forty five. And you know, if I decide to do it, I'm going to have to borrow the money from a bank or a credit mm -hmm. card or something. And I'm just trying to look at the numbers for the last year or two and try to project out another two or three years and see if it's going to, is really going to sell. I mean, it's one of those books that's turned into an evergreen. And an evergreen is a book that, after it's published, people still want to buy it because it never goes out of style. The New Yorkers has turned into that. But it's a huge investment for me to do it again. And so, you know, it's it's a big decision. I haven't decided what I'm going to do yet. Do you show, do you have exhibits of this work? Yeah, I actually, I had a show um, last October, I think it was October, at America House in Munich, mm -hmm. which is basically 
There's a beautiful um, gallery space. It was really right in this uh, area of Munich where they have all the museums. Originally, it was um, started by uh, the American Information Agency and after World War II, it was a way of spreading the American culture around the world. And a few years ago, uh, I think Munich or the, the province or whatever they call it bought the uh, building and took it over. And so I had a real retrospective size uh, show there of 40 or 45 images from the New Yorkers. And it was really incredible experience. They were super uh, enthusiastic. Um, I had a German-American curator named Mark Robino help me put this together. And we made some really big 40 by 60 beautiful prints to wow. in the show. The train conductor wasn't one of them, unfortunately. But the back cover of the book you have was printed uh, about, I'd say, 60 by 100 inches. So it was the central image of the show of the woman on the train platform. And I had brought all of my handmade um, prints that I made at home to, they were 17 by 22s, I did about 40 of them, and we framed them all. And the great thing is, you know, we had an opening in Munich, there was a lot of publicity, and during the first weekend of the show, they do something called uh, the Night of the Museums in Munich, and all the museums are open to 3 o'clock in the morning, and 4,000 people saw the New Yorkers in one day. Wow. Yeah. So it's really wonderful experience, Yeah. Did you did you get a lot of great questions from people from a kind of another cultural orientation looking at yeah. you know, your culture? What kind do you, do you, can you think of a a question that you were surprised at? Well, the thing about being in Germany is Germans are a little bit cold at the beginning, mm -hmm. and of course it's the language problem. But I gave a little talk at the opening, and you could see their faces change after about five minutes, where they just decided that I was okay and let me in a little bit. And they're very inquisitive and enthusiastic. And, you know, I just felt like I had made a connection. Hmm. That's a bit really, that's really, really important. Yeah. And a really good, good feeling to take away from that experience. Absolutely. Yeah. So where, where can people find your book, The New Yorkers, if, they, if they want to buy it. Well, it's funny. I just dropped off a whole bunch of copies at The Strand this week. Oh, so at The Strand in New York. <laughs> you know, just to emphasize, this is a self-published book. To have a book in all the major bookstores in New York was really a labor of me contacting the book buyers in each store and sending them a PDF and asking if they wanted to see a hard copy and it was actually a really wonderful thing. I mean, I could have had a publisher for this book for a whole different, a whole bunch of reasons. The recession hit in 2008, and one of the publishers wanted it, said he just ran out of money. Yeah. And the other part of the publishing business is that most photography books um, need about 30,000, 35,000 of your own money for a regular mainstream publisher to publish them. It's kind of like the little secret of the publishing business. And, you know, after getting these quotes from publishers you've probably heard of, I just realized that I, um, I would have a better, more control over the book, and I would probably make more money on the sales. And that's exactly what happened. But I... I had to set up the distribution. I put the book on Amazon. That's one place you can buy it. And, you know, the wonderful experience of meeting a book buyer and having them look at your book and say, okay, we'll try it, is a really good thing that most authors don't get to do. And then, you know, you bring the book to MoMA, and they take five copies, and then a month later you get an email and say, we need another 15, and we want some for the design store. And it's been going on for four years. It's not a bad thing. No, that's a that's very, that's great. That's encouraging, and I'm sure it makes you feel, you know, the investment in all aspects 
in which you invested were was was well worth it. Yeah, it really was. Um, I think I, I kind of lost my train of thought, but you know, I, I got the book into Barnes and Noble as well, and and a lot of little bookstores all around New York. And I think it's really a satisfying thing to make these personal connections with people. And it really kind of changed my life. You know, I really um, needed some validation. I'm walking around for 30 years, and this goes back to my idea about the pictures never changing, but you change as a person and you see the pictures differently. I mean, when I made the pictures back in the early 80s, I knew they were strong photos. I just had no idea how to take them and move them out into the world in a way where it, people would recognize um, the strength of them. Well, and would, and would resonate with them as well. And Oh, that's what I was going to say. When you make a photo book, you have no idea what's going to happen right. when it comes out, whether you have a publisher or not. Um, it's really you, you're on a mission to make a book because you just feel like you have to do this. And when it's finished and then you start learning how to be another person, the one who sells a commodity, you have no idea what's going to happen. I mean, basically the book started with a Kickstarter. That's how I raised some of the money for the book. And I said to my girlfriend at the time, you know, we're going to do put this... Uh, book projects on Kickstarter, and if it works, then we know that there's at least some interest in the marketplace for this. And we got 137 backers, and, you know, I mailed out all the books, and I felt like I had a fan base now. And then I raised the rest of the money, and I printed the book in Canada, and, and I was really, from my experience at SVA and my history of being a photographer, I got a really beautifully made with gorgeous color, um, final book. And I was really, really uh, picky about making a book that strong in terms of the color. Because when you buy a photography book, the color is the book. And if it's off, it just doesn't work. So I was really happy about the way uh, Friesen's printed the book. Yeah, I, I'm I'm am seeing a PDF, but I can and it's gorgeous in in its digital form. But I'm, I can imagine that the printed version is is spectacular. First of all, you're starting with Kodachrome, so that's that's got a whole color range that's exceptional. Yeah. So. And the other thing about Kodachrome is it's the most archival film ever made, mm-hmm. so it doesn't fade. Um, so when you look at a Kodachrome slide thirty years later, if you've stored it correctly in a, an archival slide sheet you're going to take it out and look at it on a light table it's going to look basically the way you saw it when it first came back from the lab and that's really great yeah what are you working on now well last night i just did a uh, uh an artist talk at, at the school of visual arts as part of the new york photo salon and i showed uh about 50 pictures that i made on the iphone while i was in italy this summer and it was really, really well received. And I'm really considering doing another iPhone book just of my pictures from Italy. That's one idea. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one is, I ha- I lived, in, believe it or not, in the middle of this whole New York odyssey. I ended up in Georgia for three years, living on a farm with a woman that I met on the internet. And wow. <laughs> While I was down there, of course, I made pictures all the time. And I have a body of work that I think will be really interesting to see. Um, And I've already scanned all the rolls of film. There's about 150, 200 rolls. And I'm starting to edit the book. And hopefully next year, um, if that's the way the direction is, I'm going to have a book of my black and white Georgia pictures. Was it a... um was it a working farm, like a agricultural farm or a livestock farm? Well, by the time I got there, it wasn't a working farm anymore, but it used to be a fish farm. Oh, interesting. Basically, they have all these ponds, and they were making bait. <laughs> so 
So they would, you know, grow the bait, so to speak, in the ponds and then truck them around the south. Um, so you were at a defunct yeah. bait farm. Yeah, but, you know, the house. My girlfriend's mother had a house. My girlfriend had a house. They had a barn. They had 50 acres. And, you know, just being um, a New Yorker all my life and sort of dropping into the middle of rural Georgia was such an experience for me in terms of making photographs. Um, it was my way of, of entering a new environment. It was a way of getting to know people. It was a way of feeling comfortable. And I find that the strongest bodies of work that I've made have that kind of immersion uh, experience. Yeah. I've taken a, a, a lot of your time today, and I appreciate it, but I wanted to ask if there was, if there's anything else that you want to share with the audience about upcoming uh, related events or anything um, that you uh, want to talk about. I guess one of the things I would say is that, you know, now that I have two books out, I've been doing photography workshops around the world. I did one in Italy last year. Um, I did one in Dallas in April. And I find that I have a lot of um, strong experience and information that people really enjoy hearing and learning from when I do a workshop. And next month, Photo Plus Expo is going to be here at the Javits Center. I'm doing two workshops. One is a street photography workshop with the iPhone. Mm -hmm. The other one is a self-publishing workshop where I try to um, give people an idea of what they can do to start from a body of work and take it all the way to uh, printing and distribution and having it in the, in the uh, bookstores. In the middle of October, like October 20th to the 24th. Can someone find out about those specifically on your website? Um, not on my website, which is robertherman.com, but if they go to the Photo Plus Expo, website is sponsored by the Photo District News, and type in my name, they will find my workshops, and they can sign up for them right there. Okay. Great. Thank you so much for talking with me and good luck with your workshops and with your upcoming projects. They, they, they sound fascinating. Thank you so much. Um, it's been great to talk to you.